Welcome to uh, this week's security seminar. Uh, this is a class in CS590E. Today's guest speaker is Michael Sant'Archangelo. He is with Anderson Consulting and uh, he is a security consultant uh, for that organization. Uh, today he's going to tell us a little bit about securing infrastructures for e-commerce. Thank you. Good afternoon or evening, I guess. Um, basically, just to give you some quick background, I've been with Anderson Consulting now for about three years. Within Anderson Consulting, we have a technology group that is dedicated to doing security. Uh, I am a member of that group, uh, and in fact, um, every day what I do is information security for clients, and it ranges. What I'd like to do during my presentation today we're going to cover real quick what are some of the common terms that we use. I would expect most of them to be pretty familiar to you, um, but I, tend to, I like to have a very interactive style. If I say something or if there is a slide that confuses you or you want to know more about, please feel free to raise your hand or just interrupt me, uh, ask me the question, I'll be happy to answer that for you. Uh, and then as we go through this, we're going to talk a little bit about some of, what are some of the risks, uh, what are some of the impacts, what happens if we as consultants don't do a good job implementing computer security, what happens if we, uh, if we don't go that extra mile. We'll talk a little bit about some of the solutions, what are the, some, of the some of the technologies we use, what are some of the ways that we employ that, what are some of the things that we do, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about risk assessments, that's kind of uh, where the bulk of our work is. In order to know what we have to do, we've got to spend some time doing a risk assessment, and I'll talk about that. If we start, everybody has an obligatory slide about the definition of information security. Uh, here's mine. You can feel free to read it if you like, but basically the big thing here is that we talk about uh, managing human and system behavior. The big thing to remember, in, in consulting at least, is that computer security encompasses more than just the hardware, more than just the technology. It's the end user. It's the people that are using it. So that's why we put human in here. We have to maintain that. We have to get some sort of consistency with both. <coughs> this is kind of an interesting slide and it's changed in the last couple of years so this is why we included it. There was a survey of 51 Fortune 1000 companies that were considering going to e-commerce, some sort of e-commerce, define it however you want. And so we said, what are, your top, what are your top three issues? If you've got an internet strategy, what are you most concerned about? And as you can see, 70% were concerned about security in some fashion. The other interesting thing then is we did a survey at Anderson Consulting of our e-commerce engagements. Again, it's defined, it's a pretty broad swath. And we said, how many of you thought security was important? And how many of your clients thought security was important? And again, 65%. Security two years ago, people might have talked about it, they might have thought about it, they might have cared about it. Uh, last year, there's, companies, uh, there's a company called Network Associates. They actually have a computer security launch that they did last year. There were probably 100, 150 people in a room in Dallas uh, there focused on computer security. So things are starting to change. Security is getting a lot of focus. Uh, we spend a lot of time at clients still educating them about security and then implementing some of these solutions. Traditional security, then, the types of things that we're doing, it includes the host level security. Uh, a lot now is talking about secure applications, secure programming. We still do network security. I'd say probably that's probably our biggest area, focusing on securing the network, partitioning things off, segmenting things off. Uh, physical security is something uh, that still needs to be considered, particularly in financial institutions. And then the big area, the, the big emerging area is actually policies, procedures, guidelines, and standards. This slide basically demonstrates that to, do a, a, to have a good information security uh, system in place, you need to have six pillars. 
consider those to be identification, authentication, authorization, confidentiality, integrity, and non-repudiation. We do some quick definitions. Right. And, I, and again, this is the section I expect most people to be familiar with, right? Identification, that's your username. It's who you are. Authentication, it's typically your password, but it's the way that you prove out that that identity is what, who you expected. And then authorization is, are you allowed to do what you want? Do you have permission to do those things? Confidentiality is assurance um, that nothing has been seen by other people. That if I send something to you and I want only you to see it, only you see it. Integrity means that something is accurate, it's authentic, it hasn't been altered in any way. And the non-repudiation is something that's really big in the financial markets. It proves that if I sent you something, not only did you get it, but I know that you got it. So if we start to look at then what are the impacts, two big terms we use, threats and vulnerabilities. The threat is something that has potential to cause harm to a system. But it's typically thought of, uh, for instance, a hurricane can be a threat, a flood can be a threat. A hacker, right? Everybody, when you say threat, they think of, you know, somebody in a ponytail with a bandana sitting at a computer smoking a pack of cigarettes trying to break into your system. Well, that's, that's a threat, right? Vulnerabilities, though, are weaknesses. It's something that wasn't implemented right in the system or it's a, it's a hole, right? I mean, SendMail had a lot for a long time. Uh, NT still has a lot. Maybe somebody didn't code something right. Uh, those are things that can be exploited. Uh, so the traditional risks. Businesses then, if they don't implement good computer security, they can face a lack of privacy or confidentiality. This is a big area now in health insurance, in insurance, healthcare. Um, transaction integrity. This is really big in e-commerce now. If you, you need to have that integrity that nobody changed the orders around, nobody changed uh, your business to business communications around. Uh, false identification of transaction participants. You need to know who you're dealing with, and you need to know that they're the people that you expected to deal with. Right? The inability to prove transactions occurred is, is I think, pretty self-explanatory in the false storefront. Obviously, people need to have some sort of confidence that whoever they're transacting business with is who they expected to, and that they're not sending information in the wrong direction. So then, if we were to try to break this down, and we'll work left to right and talk about some of the threats, if on the left there, at the client segment, we say that's either a customer or a potential business partner. There's threats at the client level, right? They can download a virus, some sort of malicious code. As they start to then transmit their information over the internet, you could substitute in private network. Somebody can intercept, right? Somebody can take over a session. Somebody can read passwords. Uh, and in our experience, we found, I mean, think about this. Do you have a different password for everything you do? Right? I mean, you might break it down into, well, I've got a password for stuff I do on the internet, and I've got a password for my banking stuff, and I have a password at home, but most people don't. Uh, most people are still learning computers, they're still new to them. They have one password. They have one password, and then when they need to change it, they add a number onto the back of it so they can just remember. If it's not the first one, it's the next one I tried. If somebody steals that password, they've gained access to a lot of things, a lot more than just a computer system. Web servers. This is obviously in the news every day. Uh, somebody somewhere has hacked into another web server. They've altered it. They've trashed it. Uh, it could be seemingly harmless. For some companies, it may actually rob them of all of their integrity. Somebody may no longer want to do business with them. They may not trust them. They figure if their web server was hacked, somebody changed their pages, then I don't know what they're doing with my credit cards. I don't know what to do with my information, and I'm not willing to give it to them anymore. So that's actually a, a pretty big risk, even though I would say to some traditional security people, it seems more like a nuisance.
the real threats then, in my opinion, come in in the back end. If somebody breaks into an application server, they start viewing or modifying sensitive data. Insurance companies see this all the time. I mean, think about it. If an insurance company is playing out claims and you have a way to insert yourself in there that you can get paid a claim once a week, it's a pretty lucrative job. Pretty, it's a pretty lucrative opportunity, and that's where we tend to focus a lot on trying to protect these types of things. And then, of course, once somebody breaks into a corporate network, they've got exposure to a lot of the systems. And again, same thing, right? They can look for passwords. They can look for interesting files. Um, a lot of Unix systems then will create our host files, and then you can just map your way across the entire network. The big thing to remember, though, too, is that attacks can also come from the inside. The mainstream media, in my opinion, is kind of focused in on the hacker, somebody coming in and trying to attack you from the outside. But our polls and other polls on the Internet actually show that's about 30% of the time. Most of the time, the attacks are coming from internal, from somewhere else. But the key here, basically, is that this is all negative, whether it's bad press, whether it's stolen information, whether it's some sort of denial of service. Uh, this doesn't work out well for companies. So then if we start to talk about where do the threats come from then, all right, so disgruntled informer employees, that's actually number one. That comprises about 70%. Now, I had somebody ask me once, do we make a distinction between disgruntled and former employees? Uh, no. And the reason is, in our experience, a lot of companies, when you're terminated, they don't take away your access badges. They don't have a real good system for taking away your passwords, changing your rights, taking away your dial-up access. Or a lot of companies now, on their dial-up servers, they have one username, one password, shared by 25, 50, 100 people. Well, they fire you. They don't change it. You still have access. So you were disgruntled. Now you're former. <laughs> you still come in. Competitors. Competitors can definitely go after your information. Thieves, always a motivation for money. Hackers, hackers. Uh, we've kind of made the distinction here between hackers and thieves. Hackers, we tend to say are more they want to do it, right? It's kind of like uh, bragging rights. I'm the first one who broke your website. I'm the one who stole this information. I prevented your customers from doing something. Thieves, on the other hand, are more motivated by by stealing these plans. I get money. Uh, we've seen cases where there was actually a company, this happened a couple years ago, um, there was a company that was manufacturing a product with a company in Korea, the U.S. company connecting with a company in Korea. They sent the plans, years of R&D, they sent the plans over the public internet. Another company in Korea had actually been sniffing that network, took the entire set of plans and beat them to market. The company spent millions of dollars in R&D, they lost it all, they lost everything. This other company beat the pants off them, and they got free R&D out of it. Uh, and then foreign governments. I think we throw in there, this in there for the shock factor. Um, but if you, if you followed the news, if you followed CNN, uh, during the recent scuffles in the Europe and in the Mideast, they, they've talked about hackers that have broken in and stolen stuff. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I actually read an article, and it's, I think, fairly dated, that talked about the fact that during the Gulf War, there were uh, a group of hackers in Israel that hacked into a SecWar computer and took out like tank movements and tried to sell them to the Iraqi government. And the Iraqi government just figured, no way, nobody could ever hack into the US. But imagine if they believed them. Imagine if their asking price was low enough. And they said, yeah, sure, we'll buy those. And yeah, we'll put some people there just in case. Right? Things start to change. So then the impacts to businesses, we've already talked about the fact that they can face some public embarrassment. 
uh, not to pick on anybody, but Bell South has been hacked a couple times. We do another presentation. It's just kind of a, an endless loop, and it shows here's what the website looked like before, and then here's how it got hacked. Bell South has popped up in that presentation four or five times, four or five different hacks. My favorite one says security, something Bell South does not have. Right? Now, they still do pretty good business, but um, imagine if you weren't a utility. Imagine if you weren't regulated that way. What happens if somebody keeps hacking your pages and putting that up? I think your customers are going to walk away pretty quick. Compromised integrity of information. Obviously, this is going to matter. I mean, if you bought a book from Amazon and the wrong book shows up at your house and this happens consistently, uh, something's wrong. Something's not working well. So we need to try to protect those things. Fraud. Fraud will probably always exist. The problem is when we start to apply these things to the computers, it's automated fraud. It's not going down to an office and pretending to be somebody you're not. It's not finding a way to bilk the system by writing a letter. It's finding a way to defraud the system automatically and systematically. And uh, you can set it up to run on your computer, go to school, go to work, go on vacation, and you'll do fine. And actually, they catch most people in this situation because uh, they'll work at a bank, for instance, and they'll say, okay, I'll take a, a hundredth of a penny every hundredth transaction. And they think that'll be small enough. Well, that grows to about a million dollars after a week. And people notice that. And they notice those types of things. Privacy, legal liability. This is uh, big. If anybody's followed HIPAA, which are the new uh, standards, federal standards for information privacy in the healthcare. These are very big. And what I think what we'll start to find after we settle out Y2K uh, is that we're going to have a lot of really sharp lawyers. They're going to really be computer savvy. Y2K issues will be gone. They'll have this knowledge. We've moved everything from centralized mainframes to some sort of distributed computing. And um, in the rush for Y2K, we haven't really thought about security. So I think we're going to start to focus in then on breach of confidentiality, breach of privacy. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more legal liability showing up that we hadn't really considered before. System and network outages, these happen all the time. A couple months ago, MCI had a backbone cut out. Uh, that created a lot of problems for a lot of people. Theft of communication services, right? This is the old time hacking. This is when you tap into the network switch, you start making long distance calls. Uh, this will still be around too. Uh, loss of credibility, loss of market share. Actually, it's kind of funny. If you look at some of the sites that have been hacked, their stock prices dip by as much as 25 to 50%. Most rebound, uh, but not all of them do. And then financial loss. If we want to try to then quantify some of this financial risk, what happens? It's been estimated by more than one set of people that Melissa this year alone was $7.6 billion. Another figure I saw said that for every virus on a desktop, it takes an average of $153 to clean it. Between actually running the antivirus software, updating it, educating the users, lost downtime, uh, things like that. There was an international bank. This actually happened a couple years ago. Uh, big bank, New York. They didn't have good EFT security. There was a Russian group that was able to transfer almost $12 million. Uh, nothing they could do about it. Six, uh, apparently, six million online consumers have been victims of credit card fraud, un unauthorized use. I don't have a lot of details behind that, but it's a pretty alarming statistic. Uh, and then, actually, we've seen, if you start talking to computer companies, about a year ago, if you asked a, a company that had an internet presence, or at least a gateway, they have internet access in, you say, have you been hacked? Is anybody knocking at your door? Is anybody, have you had any sort of a breach? They'd say, no, of course not, or I don't know. And we kind of looked at that and said, well, either they're lying, or they really don't know. Well, a year later, uh, it's going up. It's more than doubled. Yep, we've had an incident. Yep, people are knocking on the door. Yep, we've had a breach. We see these things coming through. 
Uh, I tend to think people now understand what a breach is. I think they see it coming through their doors. And I think this number is probably still pretty low. I think a lot of people don't really see it yet. When we go to a client then, what are some of the solutions? What are some things we look at? If we want to talk about some of the technology, then we're going to focus in on firewalls. I'd say maybe four years ago, there's a big push, right? Firewalls or internet bad, evil. Firewalls are good, right? Um, a lot of people caught that message. There's still a lot who don't, um, but I don't know of any. Intrusion detection systems, this is actually in the corporate market. This is still a pretty new idea, putting in intrusion detection systems. In fact, uh, I'm working on a proposal right now where we've designed an intrusion detection system in, and we've actually gotten a lot of, a lot of attention for that but good positive attention. They've, they've been excited that we're willing to include that type of a thing. Uh, encryption. There's lots of different levels of encryption. Uh, authentication. People are starting to realize that just using username and password doesn't work very well. Why? Same reasons we just talked about. People choose really easy to guess passwords. We were at a client in Dallas, Texas, and uh, we were doing a security engagement, and we said, tell you what, why don't we check to see if we can find any passwords. So we took a, a dictionary, a password cracker, dictionary program, NT network, but we were in Dallas. So we loaded in names like Aikman. We did Dallas. We did Dallas backwards. We did Dallas, Dallas. We loaded in Dallas Cowboys with the numbers of the, the famous players. All kinds of permutations that you can think of. We ran it. I think we cracked like 300, 400 passwords just like that alone. Not too tough. Or a lot of the corporate environments, again, people have to think about so many systems, they'll write them on a yellow post-it note, stick them under the mouse pad. Uh, there was one example, somebody wrote it with their eraser, their monitors, they collect a little bit of dust, they wrote it in the monitor. They took the back of the eraser and they wrote their password in the monitor. Or um, th These are a little bit more clever, but they're just as easy to find. Lean back in the chair and look up at the ceiling. If it's a drop ceiling, it's got little crossbars. People write the passwords on those. Or they'll write them on the file cabinet, or they'll write them on the side of the computer. But if you know this, you go look for it. Or the same thing, a lot of people look like a picture on their desk. They'll have a pet, and they'll have the pet's name under it. Try that with some number after it. You'll probably get in. You'll probably find it. So people started to say, geez, you know, passwords just aren't working out for me. Um, so they started to go to authentication tokens. They've started to use smart cards. And now they're even starting to get hardware. They have keys. Now that you've got universal serial buses on a lot of laptops, you can get something the size of a keychain plugs into the back, it's a hardware key. You do that with a password, the company's fairly sure that you're, you're who you expected to be. They also now have, uh, about two years ago, if you wanted to get a fingerprint, a thumbprint scanner for your keyboard, you'd pay about $1,000. You can get one now for about 20. Uh, and in Windows NT, actually, they've integrated them quite tightly. You can walk up to the computer, put down your thumbprint, it'll work. We've got some clients in the financial industry that are actually starting to do retinal scans. And in fact, I read an article yesterday that there are a lot of ATMs, in fact, in the New York area that are starting to use retinal scans to validate you. No more, in fact, you don't even have to show up with a card anymore because the, the patterns on your eye are so different. And what's kind of interesting is like we all saw the movies of the 1980s where somebody would sneak up behind somebody else, choke them out, pop out their eyeball, go up, hold it. It doesn't work that way anymore. They've changed that technology too, so you don't have to worry about losing an eye and losing all your money. In fact, if you lose your eye, you've got a lot more problems than that. Yes, sir. How do you deal with uh, getting rid of the biometric when you no longer are with that bank or when the bank loses the data and now your biometric is available to everyone? That's a good question. That's a good question that I think a lot of people haven't thought about yet, quite frankly. Hardened OS. Is this a, t a term that's familiar with you guys? Are you guys familiar with the idea of hardening an OS? 
Good. Uh, a lot of corporate America isn't. You say hardening an OS, and they say, I'm sorry, what? Uh, and so what happens is, if you think of something like, for example, Windows NT is gaining a lot of popularity. Uh, in corporate America, it's popping up all over the place. In fact, most places are running NT on the desktops. But when it ships, it ships with all services on and no security features turned on. Well, if you start developing on that, I assure you then, two days before they go to production, when they say, hey, do a security check for me, make sure everything's okay, and you say, well, get rid of this service, get rid of this service, close this port, close this, turn this off, everything breaks. Everything breaks. And they, they can't figure out where. So hardening an OS is actually really important in the corporate environment. That's the number one way to prevent most attacks. Web access control products. Is this something, again, familiar, not familiar? Uh, there's a big product called Get Access. There's a couple other, SiteMiner by NetTegrity. Um, Netscape has a solution as well. These are kind of really unique for the companies that are going to more web-based models. I was working at a, at a client, another client in Dallas, uh, and they are doing um, full-blown, actually it's a, a complete internet DSL rollout. And their whole web management station is based on this web, this web access control because what it provided us was an opportunity that you can log in from anywhere. You can come in over the DSL connection. You can come in from a remote dial-up. If you're at a kiosk, you're traveling overseas, anywhere, you can come in, request the URL, and then it'll present you with the username and a password. And you can enter that. And it had support for digital certificates. It had support for hardware types of things. Um, it encrypted everything that it sent back. And the beauty of it was then that it gave you an encrypted cookie that did two things. The web access control actually gives you the authentication that you need, and then it gives you authorization, and it builds a table of which other URLs you can protect. The advantage here is that most people are crafty enough that they'll say, well, I know what the URL I need is. I'll bypass the authentication. I won't have to enter a username and password. This intercepts. It actually has a plugin that sits on the web server, and it intercepts every single URL request, and it looks at it. It says, who's requesting this? Is this a protected URL? And it does this in a pretty split second. It maintains a table. It says, oh, protected URL. And then it immediately checks your browser. You put an encrypted cookie there, and it says, OK, is this a valid cookie? Is this person who, do I know this person? And do they have access to this web page? If so, you're loaded up right away. If not, it'll bring you to a login page. You enter in your username and password, and then it'll redirect you and it'll bring you right back to where you were. What this also does then is that if you're trying to integrate a lot of different applications behind this web, one web interface, you can then actually pass off the variable of either username, some sort of ID, and you can pass it on to each layer of the application. And the person logs in just once. On the internet, that's a big plus. People like that a lot. And then virtual private networks. I would say in my experience, we're just starting to see a lot of these pop up. Uh, as the firewalls get more powerful, as the routing devices get more powerful, they get faster. Uh, we've seen lately, in fact, the, the client we're working on right now, we were talking about using IPsec to create a VPN, a VPN from uh, point to point with router encryption. It's the first client I've actually been on where they've, they've seriously talked about doing that. Um, so a lot of these things are starting to come into focus. I would say these are the big areas that we're focusing on right now. If we then talk about web architectures, e-infrastructure, the reason we say e-infrastructure now is because the infrastructure, there's an architecture and there's an infrastructure. An architecture typically applies to just hardware. It is just technology. An infrastructure, however, also applies then to the policies, to the, um, to the people, to the training, to the level of education, to your strategy. We can still break it into four layers, though. Traditionally, if we go build an infrastructure, our architecture is going to be built on client, a presentation layer, an application logic layer, and a data layer. 
Now in some circumstances you'll see the presentation layer and the app layer combined. In other circumstances you'll see the app layer and the data layer combined. Uh, I'm currently working on a proposal. Uh, we're, we're providing a response. On Monday, we had our application layer separate from our data layer. On Tuesday, we had them together. On Wednesday, we had them apart again. And when I left this morning, we had them back together. So um, this is pretty much how most things look. If we look at the presentation layer then, the general attacks we'll face are pretty much denial of service attacks because people are going to want to take down your web server. They're going to want to turn it off or they're going to shut down your firewall. If you've got an old firewall, it won't be too tough for somebody to crush it and they're going to try really hard. Or they're going to go for known web server vulnerabilities. Uh, now, I, I don't think anybody's really paying attention. So how many people have actually looked at all the hacks that are available out there? Any of the sites? There's one I found the other day, something called What's It Running? It's a really simple utility, runs Windows, runs Unix. You just tell it the host name or the IP address, it'll come back, it'll tell you what OS, what version, if it has any hot fixes on it, if it has any patches, it'll tell you if it's running a web server, what version. If you know that then, you can go anywhere else on the internet and find out exactly what vulnerabilities they have. You can tell. I mean, it, it, it takes the guesswork out of actually trying to, to trash a web presence, right? Um, so this is still a big problem. Or people will try to tend to go over NFS or some other weak protocol uh, that people mount because it's convenient. That's the other thing too. The thing that we're facing is that computer security is changing as fast as computers change. But the corporations are still slow to embrace it. Right. I've often said selling computer security, convincing somebody they need computer security is kind of like selling flood insurance in Arizona. Maybe in Vegas, after they got flooded out this year, you've got a lot more believers. They got religion. But the guys in Arizona that live in the middle of the desert, they don't get flooded out. They don't see the need for it. If you're a bank, you're not going to report, I had a $10 million loss last year. Oh, we lost a billion dollars. Why? People are not going to want to bank with you. They, they'll lose confidence in you. So people don't report these incidents, or they don't know same things we've already talked about. So what happens then is people get comfortable with the systems they've got. You've got an in-house IT department that says, I've got a web server, I need NFS on that web server because that's the only way I can ever get content on that web server. They're not willing to talk about other options. Uh, and then you've introduced a big vulnerability into your system. Where it gets interesting though is that in, in client type situations, we don't always have the ability to say, well, sorry, I, I know that's convenient for you, but that's not the way to do it. We have to keep in mind who's paying the check, whose requirement is it, what's the balance, right? Computer security is a balance. Uh, this week on our proposal, we sat down on Monday and we said, all right guys, take a whiteboard. What's the ideal architecture? Here's all our requirements, right? And we're doing financial transactional data and it's globally. So we're talking about, well, we need non-repudiation, obviously. We need end-to-end -end message level authenticity. We need to verify integrity. And we really need confidentiality. I want point-to-point -point encryption on everything. Well looks great. Right? We spent 10 hours developing all these things, explaining it to everybody, and then we went to our alliance partners. They looked at it and they went, well, that's great, but you know what? We're the network provider and um, I don't want to do point-to-point -point IPsec. I want to do line encryptors, uh, but only in my network, and I don't want to have routers on the edges that I have to maintain that do that. And then somebody else said, well, you know what though, guys? I, I see that you're looking to do a PKI, but we already provide that and um, I don't want to re-architect all this. So we had to sit back down and say, okay, here's our requirements, and now we don't have a clean slate. Here's our puzzle pieces. Here's how we put this together. So that what's kind of unique about consulting then is that you may know this is the right security solution. This is the absolute best. This is the Fort Knox. Um, but what you have to do is take everything into account. Uh, and in fact, we were at a client where they wanted to use NFS. 
And it was a three-month battle to, con to finally convince them that this was really a bad idea. And ultimately, we did a penetration test. And we showed them how easy it was to come back across that NFS link into their back end and start uh, disrupting things. And then they were pretty quick to believe, right? Again, they got the religion. Um, but a lot of the, the common solutions, though, a lot of the ways we'll, we'll help this, we'll talk about patch management. Um, if you see a site like CERT or a site like Sirius or uh, Coast, somebody who tells you these are the vulnerabilities, these are the things we found, uh, usually attacks will stem from those vulnerabilities for the first 48 hours, pretty hot and heavy. People look at those right away. Everybody's willing to try them out. You wouldn't believe eight months, a year, two years later, the number of people that haven't implemented those patches. They don't look at it. Patch management is critical. It's not an easy thing to do either. Think about if you've got a system that part of the shop uses HPUX, part of them uses Solaris, somebody else uses NT, they've got a site in Dallas, a site in Kansas City, somebody out in the West Coast, then people over in Europe. How do you coordinate all that? And do you want your administrators updating a patch every time a new one comes out? Because some of the vendors, they're releasing patches weekly, and that's downtime. And then that's maybe it impacts something else on your system you've got to affect. So patch management's not as easy as it sounds, but it's a really good way to stem a lot of problems. Um, creating a DMZ, again, this is something everybody's familiar with. Uh, basically, you, you create two sets of firewalls, or you can use routers, you can use IP uh, packet filtering on the routers. And you create an area that you control, and you know what's going into and out of it, and it's a little weaker on one side, so you allow a lot more traffic inbound and some connections outbound. And then between your presentation layer and your back end, where the family jewels are, it's real tight. You allow very limited protocols, you can do content filtering, you can stateful inspection on your firewalls, and you can really check everything that's coming through. Uh, obviously, the OS hardening and security policy compliance things. Um, there's a product made by uh, Accent Technologies called Accent ESM, Enterprise Security Manager. This is something that particularly for a Unix or an NT system, and it works really well in an NT system, you can put it on and you can say, okay, on every PC, I don't want anybody to be an administrator. These are the permissions I want on these directories and these files, and this is what it looks like. Once a week, you can run that, and you can check it. You can say, did anybody change it? Did anybody suddenly become an administrator? Did somebody thwart some of these, and then you can automatically correct it, put it back. Um, a lot of times, power users, or just users who, who aren't quite sure what they're doing, they need power, they need more advanced privileges on a system than maybe they should have, and they create vulnerabilities that they're not even aware of, that you're not aware of, if you don't know they're doing it. This is a great way to do some of that policy checking at your OS level. Uh, web access controls? Yes, sir? Does it create a hash or something of the actual password files, or, I mean, when you, when it, does it take an image? of the certain, I don't know, attributes of the particular file or directory that yeah. you want to... That's yeah, what happens is uh, you create a baseline image, and uh, it does two things. For instance, if you're running on a Windows NT, you can say, okay, I want these directories to be set with these permissions and these files, and I want to check for these vulnerabilities. And you run it the first time, and that establishes a baseline. And it can save either a copy locally, or it can save it centrally somewhere. And then when you run it again, it'll compare the two. It'll say, last time I ran, I had this. Oh, this has changed. And then it can check, is this an allowable change, or did something here go wrong? And then it flag it, creates a managed report. Um, and then you've got intrusion detection systems. Uh, and they're kind of neat, too. Uh, I have a little bit of familiarity with um, uh, network associates. And they've put together now a, a tool they call Event Orchestrator. It allows you to put your intrusion detection system with your host-based system, with your firewall, uh, all together. And they hook in. So, for example, your intrusion detection detects some sort of an, uh, detects an attack coming through your firewall. And it says, oh, it, it's coming over this port. Issues a command to the firewall, stop it, turn it off, shun the attack. Yes, sir? So why don't you get a denial of service attack that way? 
you do. That's exactly what happens. And then the other, the other drawback to that is you get a lot of false positives still. So you, you have a, a network device that goes down and it starts sending out 200 SNMP messages per second uh, and you start shutting everything down. Uh, so a lot of people don't use it. But it's some interesting technology. The other way that you can use something like that then is you generate a message. It sends a page, it sends an alert, it sends an email. Uh, and then it can actually, you can even program it to say, I've detected this on this port, this is what it looks like, do you want me to take this action? And then you can say yes or no. What that does, yes sir? Um, with that event orchestrator, yeah. don't you have to use proprietary 30-bit um, APIs or in their stuff that they license out? Right. Yeah, and right now it only works with their software. So for instance, if you want to use a gauntlet firewall, it works great. If you want to use checkpoint, it doesn't work so well yet. They're changing that though, because we've given a lot of pressure and said, well, this isn't really good. Because again, the other thing you're going to find is that it might be really ideal to use all Cisco and all HP equipment. It doesn't work that way. A lot of places, well, these guys had Sun because Sun came in and gave them a good deal. And then they got HP over here because that was a really good deal for them. Uh, and then IBM was over here and they had some mainframes and now they have some AIX boxes. So yeah, that's, that's a really good point. But it's kind of neat. In terms of a trend, where things are going, things you can do with it. At both the application logic and the data layers then, uh, the trusted relationships that people establish between servers is a big threat. If one server is compromised, so is the other one. Shared usernames and passwords. You see this a lot in programming, right? Somebody will say, okay, well, this program can run as this user, and here's the password. It's coded clear text. Um, in a database, for instance, it might have CRUD access, and it can do anything it wants. Um, that's a, that's a really big risk, actually. And then privileged access controls. There's a lot of like privileged brokering programs, like the freeware, like sudo or something like that, where you can say, okay, not everybody's root. But there's a lot of places that still say, you go, well, how many people have access to root? Oh, about 20, 30. Wow. How do you trace if somebody did something wrong? We don't. So the way you do that, you audit consistently. But now there's a downside to auditing, right? You've got to have disk space, and then you have to have somebody to go through it. Even if you have a computer program that combs it, it still generates what smaller reports, smaller trends, but you still have to work through those. You still have to figure those out. Uh, Role-based access control is getting real big, or uh, virus scanning. Big, big time still on your application servers and your data servers, you want to check for viruses, particularly if you're using Windows. So if we talk about some of the solutions then, same, same diagram we had before. Uh, on the client segment then, start to just use stronger authentication. I don't quite frankly see this happening all the time yet, but there's more of a trend to it. As the devices get easier to use, they get smaller. As the encryption schemes get faster, as the, the hardware gets more able to do this, more people take advantage of it. As it gets cheaper to deploy, more people will continue to do this. Uh, and then the big thing, of course, and this is actually fairly big, and this is fairly true to form, using encryption. If you're doing something over the web, uh, obviously most people use SSL. But then at that point, you've got to consider what version you're using. SSL version 2 is still vulnerable to a lot of attacks. Well, a lot of people who launched a couple years ago, they used SSL version 2, they haven't updated. Because in their mind, why bother? I'm already protected, right? I'm using SSL. Uh, or now that 128-bit is legal for export, people are still using 40-bit or 50-bit or 56-bit. And they're not using the 128-bit that maybe affords them some better protection. Creating multiple firewalls or establishing some sort of a VPN, and you can actually use your firewall devices now to do that. Obviously, enhancing your web server security. Best way to do that, quite frankly, is to tighten it down. Don't run a web server with an application server, with a DNS server, uh, and all these things on one box, because you made yourself more vulnerable. 
obviously institute some good application level security. And then uh, a lot of people now are starting to move towards PKIs. I think more people will adopt PKIs as the, the standards get more interoperable. Uh, as long as you've got an Entrust certificate and a VeriSign certificate and they don't play nice with each other, uh, it makes it really tough for wide scale spreads. But uh, in the solution we're looking at, that's the best way that we can provide end-to-end -end integrity. If you sign a message with that digital certificate and then I can verify that at the end, that makes a lot of sense. So we, we picked the vendor and we said, great, this is our solution. Uh, a lot of companies that really need that level of integrity or that level of non-repudiation are really trying to go towards those types of things. Um, and then, of course, that tends to throw in some sort of a, an LDAP server. Um, but the thing to keep in mind here is that it's not just a technology approach, right? You've got policies and procedures that need to be comforted uh, as part of the monitoring. So if you do that auditing, if you have web server security, you need to monitor that. You need to have a policy. What is your policy on web server security? What do you allow and what do you not allow? Do you allow FTP? Because a lot of places still want to use FTP. So you need to have a policy on that. Do you allow it in certain circumstances to certain addresses? Um, the last client I was at in Dallas where we were doing the internet rollout, we allowed FTP for the admins, but it had to come from a certain host address only over a certain port, only to another computer. Now, is it fail safe? No. I mean, somebody could technically spoof that. They could come in and they could, they could fake that. But the likeliness of that happening is a lot less than just saying, no, you can use unrestricted FTP. Go ahead. The big thing to remember here, then, is that a lot of these weaknesses are actually created when somebody says, yeah, we got a firewall, we don't have to worry. For the longest time, that was the silver bullet. I put a firewall up, I'm protected. I don't have to worry about anything. And they didn't worry about the rule sets. They didn't worry about checking it. They didn't worry about monitoring it um, and updating the patch revisions. So maybe that doesn't help. So you don't want to create a false sense of security from your architecture. So to give you two examples here, uh, and I'll, I'll try to keep these brief so maybe we can do some better questions later. If we, uh, we had a large German bank. Our challenge then was to roll out large-scale telephone and internet banking tools. So how do we do that? So our solution basically was to design security into the solution from the beginning. So on the right are some of the things that we learned, right? 40% of the budget went to security alone. This, they were a bank. They were very, very risk-averse. <laughs> they, uh, in fact, um, after we got all, almost all the way done with this, they brought in another firm to do another audit on top of ours and another risk assessment. They were that paranoid about it. So they were willing to give a lot of the budget for this project to the security. Um, the thing we figured out pretty quick is that the operators, the users, the administrators have to have these skills too. So you've got to budget that in and you've got to start developing them early on. You can't say, okay, we go to production on Tuesday. All right, guys, ready for your first class on how to administer this? doesn't work that well. Um, they had about a 60,000 user cutover. So they, this was actually pretty, used, pretty big. Uh, and then they reused the architecture. They basically found another architecture that worked well. Uh, and we were able to bring that in and modify that. What we basically did then was we went with a browser-independent application. Uh, in Germany, they used a 128-bit SSL. Um, they used a firewall. They used uh, some proxies for secure communication. And then they, they added in the intrusion detection system with centralized auditing. This is the one we were talking about before. This is the accent system. So it, it would basically run a regular scan. And then what they did was instead of keeping each server and each host computer with its log locally, it copied them centrally. And then they wrote a program that went through and it parsed those audit logs. And it, it had certain thresholds. If you find this on this type of computer, this is a problem. Uh, and flag it. And then it told somebody, and then they could take corrective action for it. So it's a, I tend to think this is a pretty standard way to, to look at it, but basically your customers and hackers, right, because they had to throw in the hackers, uh, are 
connecting for, through the internet. They put up a firewall and then the web server, uh, and then they had it was pretty straightforward. Nothing, uh, nothing fancy here. And this is basically uh, your basic e-infrastructure architecture. Then they had another large international bank. As you can see, the financial markets have been quick on the uptake for security and the need for it. So this one, they wanted secure sign-on for bank web customers. And they wanted single sign-on, they wanted secure sign-on, and they wanted to be able to extend this later on. They wanted to say uh, a year down the road, hey, we've got all these other cool things we can offer them now, and I want to be able to go down that road. I don't want to have to limit myself. So what we did was we took a more modular approach, um, and that included actually putting it in commerce, the web access control product, because with that, we could create an environment, protection at the URL level, and in fact, the way Get Access works is kind of unique. It protects at the URL level, and, and then on the actual page, so you can say, okay, anybody coming to this URL needs to have this, needs to be in this group, or they need to be this role, and have this permission. But then you can actually then specify that down to the field. So if it's a form, you can say, well, only if you're an administrator can you fill out this form, or this part of the form. So uh, anybody can fill out this request, and only an administrator can, can approve it. But keep in mind, that all happens at the URL level. So then it can pass off usernames and other information to your application levels, and then they can administer their own level of security. This was a really modular approach. Uh, they've been improving it a lot. In fact, I think in the latest uh, part of it, they're putting in a more Corba-based architecture, which will give them a lot more expansion in the future. Currently, it's just run, uh, it's got a local Oracle server. It's called a registry. It can run on Oracle or Sybase. It typically runs on Oracle, and it just keeps a list. Here's a user, you know, here's a username, here's the roles they're in, here's what the roles are, and it's a you know, relational database. Uh, it can use, uh, we, they used RSA encryption on this. They encrypted cookies for single sign-on. That's part of what GetAccess does. Typically, our installations of GetAccess will use a non-persistent cookie. Uh, and we'll encrypt it. It is, however, encrypted proprietarily. So if you want to say, hey, you know what, I'll throw extra information in that cookie, it doesn't work yet. Uh, only get access, and they won't share with us, obviously, what that encryption is. Um, but uh, we're fairly certain it's, it's secure enough that somebody's not going to just routinely hack it, break it. Um, and then actually all the passwords and all the usernames, they're actually encrypted in the database that it's stored. And you can choose that encryption. Um, and that's what they used the Oracle to create that registry, and then they used LDAP to store the, the data. This slide basically shows uh, my point with this slide for you is that security is more than technology. Right? We need strategy, we need to align the people, you need to use the technology, and you need to have a processes. And the best way that this would really start is you work top down. You say, okay, I need to have a strategy. What is my security strategy? What are my goals? Where do I want to go with this? That feeds into the people, the processes, and the technology pretty equally. Once you've got a strategy, you can say, oh, great, this is the technology that helps me meet the strategy, and I'm going to pick this technology because I know I can teach my people how to use it. And I know that the people that will use it will understand it. It's intuitive, and it's great. And then you have to have processes. Processes for education, for maintenance, for installation, for upgrades, all the things we've already talked about. But basically, if we want to deliver good quality uh, infrastructures, good quality solutions, we have to include a holistic approach to security. <coughs> These are like big lessons learned. Uh, they may seem kind of rudimentary, but I'll tell you what, this is, this is pretty much the key right here. You take that holistic approach to security, and if you plan it from the beginning, more times than not, and this is changing. I'm actually really happy to tell you this is changing. The first couple times we went to clients, we didn't hear, oh great, the security guys are here. We heard security. Like building security? What kind of security are you guys? 
And then he went, all right, well, we go to production on, uh, on Thursday of this week. Uh, so can you check everything out for us? Yeah, we've been building this for four years. But uh, we think we're pretty good. They're not. They never are. Um, but now people are saying, you know what? We're doing financial transactions. We need security. You guys want to be part of the team? I'll tell you, tell you what, how many people do you guys need? And this proposal I'm working on, uh, we've actually, the architecture team that we've got overall has got 11 people on it. Two of them are fully dedicated to security. That's what we do. So it's exciting. It's changing. We're designing it in from the beginning. When you design it in from the beginning, it's a lot easier at the end. Um, a lot of people still see, they think of security and they think, oh, you're going to put up a firewall, I can't FTP anymore, I can't get my job done. Or a lot of companies, a lot of business executives look at you and they look at you, you look at them, and you see dollar signs flashing in their eyes. All they see is, how much is this firewall going to cost? How much is it going to cost me to do this? Now i got to hire new people to administer this? I don't want to do that. They're, they need to start to see this as an enabler. If you have good security design in from the beginning, we'll get you to market quicker. We'll get you to market securely so you won't lose your customer base. People will feel comfortable with you. And security then becomes an enabler. How do you do new business? How do you get somebody to the, the business over web? I still have people call me and say, hey, Michael, you're in information security. Can I use my web on the internet? Or can I use my credit card on the internet? That's safe. Can I buy something? That's safe. Right now, I mean, I do it all the time. I was an early adopter. I bet most of you have too. Um, but people who don't know much about it, they don't get it. Now, if a company comes out and says, we've designed security in from the beginning, we, uh, we've, we're pretty confident with this, you're going to bring a lot more consumers. Of course, keep in mind you're going to bring a lot more hackers, right? Because if you've built this up to be a secure system and somebody can break it, that's great for them. That's really bad for you. It's, you've created a new incentive. So, I mean, there's a balance. Everything we do in security has some sort of a balance. You need to plan for it. When I talk about planning here, I mean plan to have administrators. Uh, has anybody here ever done any sort of system administration? Right? It gets busy sometimes, right? What happens when your server goes down? You focus. Now, think of being in that position and then somebody coming to you. Now, you guys all, I know, like security, right? That's why you're here. But think about if you didn't. Think about if all you knew was, was your system administration and somebody came to you and said, look, I know you're already going 50 hours a week and you don't have time to upgrade and learn everything you got to learn. By the way, now I want you to monitor all these things. And we're going to add all these new desktops for you. And I want you to take care of these things. And if this alarm goes off, you've got to take this action. And you've got to watch out for patches. And you've got to watch out for viruses. And you've got to also do user administration. But we can't do it the old way anymore. When you have a crisis, what do you focus on? You don't focus on security. Because it's not your love. It's not your passion. It's not your job, right? It's something they thrust on you. When you plan appropriately for security, that means plan to have the right people, plan to use the right technology, plan to think it through. And then use established frameworks and methodologies. Um, they're out there. You guys are developing them. Uh, we're developing them. We're employing them. We're testing them. Um, the, if I take one bank and an architecture works great for them and I bring it to another bank and it works great for them, it's no shame for the bank. It's great for both of them. It means that they're both secure, right? provided I used an established framework, if I used a good methodology. So on that, I guess we should maybe start to take a look in a minute here as to what are some of the risk assessment things we do? How do we figure out if something is a good framework or methodology? Um, some of the other mistakes that we've kind of figured is, like I said, people wait too late. That's probably the number one mistake. Uh, they haven't thought about the business risks. right? This is the kind of interesting thing, too. Uh, I, I suspect a lot of you have read a lot of the, the network magazines or a lot of the PC-type magazines. Everybody now has some sort of article on security. Well, that means somebody comes in, particularly in our environments, they were on the train, they were on the plane, they picked up a magazine, they saw something about a firewall. I need a firewall. I, I need the best. I saw this article. This is great. This is what I want. But they haven't told you what they're protecting. They haven't thought about it. They found a solution that looks great. 
but it doesn't match up. So you got to really consider what are you doing, uh, or they'll give it to a junior member. I don't want to be bothered with security here. Go figure it out. Install it. I'm sure it's fine. Um, they picked a solution when they don't understand the technology. It's not even that they didn't match it up right. They don't get it. They heard somebody on a radio or they watched somebody on TV say, oh, if you've got hackers, you need a firewall. And they go, all right, I need a firewall. Don't know what it does. If you said, what does a firewall do? Well, I don't know. They ignore OS level security. We see that all the time. Uh, or again, thinking passwords and IDs are enough. Think about it. Or uh, go play tricks on your friends. See how many people have strong, strong passwords. You'll be surprised. All right. So the big focus then, we come into an engagement. Big part of consulting is, what is a risk assessment? How do we do this? This is the part, if you've got questions, feel free to ask me. This is something I've actually had the pleasure to do a couple of them. And the good news is, the more you do it, uh, the easier it gets. And this is surprisingly common sense. So all the things that you guys have thought about already, the things you've experienced, the things you've watched and learned, uh, they all apply here. It's just, in order to do a good risk assessment, you've got to pay attention to the details, and you just have to think some of these things through. So basically, um, Past this, you want to evaluate threats to business assets. Right? You need to know what you're protecting, uh, and that lets you put in the right solution uh, for the right client. You then want to start to figure out what are the weaknesses, what are the vulnerabilities, and what are your threats. For example, banks are going to have very different fret, threats than a mom and pop store who just wanted to be able to order milk online. Somebody's real motivated to get into that bank to get money. They might be a little less motivated to go to the mom and pop store to. Uh, prevent somebody from ordering milk online, right? Uh, and then we need to make recommendations. So the whole part of this assessment is to come out of this with saying, here's what we saw, here's what we think you need to do. We call it a quick hit risk assessment. What that means is this is something we can do in as few as two days or as long as five weeks. Obviously, the longer you do, typically the better in depth it's going to be, right? The more in depth, the more time you have to interview, to evaluate, to figure things out, the better it tends to get. Typically, uh, we'll do this before we write a proposal. A lot of times, the proposal's already been started or we've already been awarded a contract. So we'll come in and we'll start talking about these things. But basically, again, our objectives remain the same. That pillar I hold up in the beginning, uh, the confidentiality, the integrity, availability, those are the things that we need to protect. That's the first thing we start with, with the focus. And then we need to determine the security risks and then we need to sort of rank order. Right. If we just give somebody a laundry list, well, you could be hit by this or this or this or this. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But if we start to rate them, okay, you could have this problem and this problem. This is a high probability. This is a low probability. They start to get a real good picture of what's going on. If we do a complete risk assessment, we've got six steps. The first two are iterative. And quite frankly, if you do a good job on the first two, the rest flow pretty easily. You've got to analyze the environment and an assess the business risk. And the reason they're, that they're iterative is that, well, I'll, I've got some more slides to talk about it, but the more you do one, you'll learn more about the other. It may not jive. You go back, you check it. It may not jive. You go back, you check it. Until you get a pretty honest picture of these are the assets, these are the true assets, and this is the, this is the true environment that I'm dealing with, and this is how. For example, somebody could say, yeah, oh yeah, password policies? Yeah, we got password policies. Here's the binder. It's really thick. Yeah, we, we, we force people to change them every 45 days, and they've got to do all these great things. Well, then go talk to a user. Do you have to change your passwords? Do you know that there's a password policy? Are you forced to change your password? No, I've never changed my password. Well, did you have to follow these guidelines when choosing your password? No, I use my dog's name, right? So that's where, that's where you start to, when you analyze the environment. You've analyzed the environment, you've assessed the risk, then you do a quick security strategy session. Now, if you press for time quite, this is the one area you can actually drop off. 
if, if there's something in this model that has to go, that's the part that can go. But this also gives you a lot of value. This is when you sit down with the business leaders and you say, why do you need security? Or why do you think you need security? Where do you want to be? Where is your business going? And what do you, how do you need security to get you there? How do you need to enable that? Then you develop the recommendations. Uh, and this is where the experience plays in, right? Developing recommendations. Because you, typically you want to see it, you want to understand it. You prepare your final report, and then you make your presentation. So when we analyze the environment, we need to document the security controls and the weaknesses. Um, and then try to get an understanding of what are the requirements. So the best way to do this is you conduct interviews, you review documentation, and then you do site surveys. And the three of those, again, that's also an iterative process. You might talk to somebody, they'll give you all kinds of information. It's great. Oh yeah, by the way, do you have documentation? Yep, here it is. And you read it, and it doesn't match up to any of the notes you took. So then maybe you go on site, you check things out a little bit. You try to log into the console, you see how easy it is. You see if they left default passwords on. You go back, you talk to them again. You say, well, I kind of read this in the documentation. What does this mean? How did this make sense? What does this do? Uh, this can, if, they, if a company has kept really good documentation and they've got knowledgeable people, it makes a lot of sense. But a lot of times, if you're coming in as a consultant, you're a threat. People aren't real excited about telling you all their weaknesses. They don't trust you. you. You might be getting paid by the company to do this, but you don't work for them. Or they don't want to expose their, their, their inadequacies. They don't want to open themselves up and say, oh, I was wrong, or I made a mistake. On the other hand, sometimes you go there, and the IT people have been screaming for somebody like you to come in, and they can't wait. And they, they try to tell you everything that's wrong with the system. And they get, they, they're excited to see you. They've got a laundry list and a, and a pen, and they're here. I got this idea, and this idea, and this is how you can fix it. Um, you need to go through a couple rounds of those. Document them out. There's uh, some formats you can use. You want to document all of these reviews and interviews. Um, in terms of people you might want to talk to, we've got a list of some people that might help. You want to talk to a functional expert. How does the system work? What does it have to do? Why? Who needs to use it? You always want to talk to the management of the business leader. These are the people that will help you understand the impacts. Particularly if you need to figure out what's the likeliness of this happening, you also need to understand what's the loss if this happens. Uh, for example, I worked at another client on the West Coast, large computer manufacturer. They work quarterly. So the last week or the last two weeks of every quarter, they've got over $2 million an hour in transactions going over their website. If you take down that website then for four hours, they've lost $8 million. That's, that's pretty substantial. The really funny thing is, actually, we had a guy make a mistake once, uh, and uh, in Oracle forgot to write the commit in, tested out a script, thought it worked fine because it didn't commit, exited out, of, uh, exited out, it automatically inserted the commit, locked out the entire Oracle table, the entire production system went down. Now it happened actually in the first of the month, there was no traffic on the site yet because it hadn't really gone live, it was still in production test. Imagine if that had been the last week uh, or the last day, it took them I think six or seven hours to recover from that. Fourteen million dollars they could have lost. Right? That's, uh, so the management business leads, they'll help you understand that stuff. And then it makes it real easy when you're going to make your recommendations and you can say, well, you're using an outdated web server with no controls. And from my discussions with you, if something happens, you're going to lose $15 million. But our solution is $50,000 to implement. At that point, it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, obviously, you want to talk to security administrators. If they don't have one, you want to talk to the security technical architects or somebody else who knows about it. Uh, again, any experts on the security functionality that should be there, you want to talk to them. You want to get an understanding and appreciation of how things are working.
Maybe you want to talk to a network security lead. A lot of places still, they have application security, network security. Talk to the guys in network security. Are they using firewalls? Are they using intrusion detection? Uh, how are they authenticating things? Are they changing the passwords on the routers? Uh, talk to, a lot of companies still have internal audit. Again, separate from security. If they have that, find that lead. Talk to them. As you're then assessing the business risk, you want to document the key assets. So again, you're talking to the business leaders. What do you need to protect? Is it, are you protecting information? Uh, are you protecting service? What are the threats? What are the vulnerabilities? What are the business impacts? What happens if something happens to the environment? Um, you need to identify all that. You need to document that out. You need to do it pretty clearly. And you need to remember, the main audience for this is going to be business people. So you need to qualify this in business terms. And then at the end here, you do a quick debrief session. And the best thing to do, I've found, is you get all the players, all the leads into the same room. So you get your network guy, and you got your application guy, and the business guys, and everybody else you interviewed, and you get them all in, and you kind of show them your findings. Uh, and if you found a lot of really interesting things, you need to be really careful. Uh, these situations can be fairly politically charged at times. But by doing that, by having everybody in the same room at the same time, and going through your documented results, they start to get a better picture of what, what they've seen. Because you don't, you're not tied to any territorial wars. You're not tied to the way that they've always done business. And you can sit down, and if somebody says, no, we don't do that, well, then the guy who told you they did can back it up. And it gives them a chance to dialogue. And it gives everybody involved a chance to understand what the next steps are. Uh, and then we have created uh, a thing called a threats matrix. And with our threats matrix, we complete that, and it kind of lists, OK, here's the threat. Here's the impact. Here's the probability of that happening. And if it does, here's the level of damage. And we made it real simple. It's high, medium, or low. So that way, you kind of get a weighted number of anywhere between 0 and 9. right? And 9s are bad. 3s are, threes are the highs. So if you get a 9, that's something they really need to consider. Um, when we're assessing, then, the business risks, you want to identify the assets, identify the threats, then you identify the vulnerabilities, right? Again, remember, a threat is a, a person, a thing. Uh, if you live in an area that gets flooded a lot, if you live in an area that gets tornadoes a lot, versus a vulnerability, well, you're using outdated software. You haven't programmed this real accurately. Then you need to determine the business impact. Again, rely on the business leaders for this. Uh, a technical guy might tell you, oh, yeah, it'd be really bad if that happened. But they might not really know the numbers, the dollars and the cents. And then you need to prioritize the risks. Um, Again, this is more identifying the threats. I pretty much covered most of this. Uh, the vulnerabilities, again, you take a look where the security is lacking. Uh, and then, like I said before, we kind of have this priority scale. And it's a quick little equation. So it's not calculus. Everybody can remember it. The risk is a potential damage times the likelihood. So again, a 9 is uh, something that's a red alert. Somebody needs to look at that. The strategy session. Now, I think these are a lot of fun. This is a chance where you can kind of brainstorm. You can talk about pie in the sky. This is where we're going to be in a year. These are the things that can really affect you. Where do you want your business to be, and how can we help you get there? Um, you've talked about the future business initiatives. So uh, a lot of companies now, brick and mortar stores, they want to go on the web. And they're, they're going to start by selling CDs. That seems to be pretty low cost, pretty high transactional volume. And you say, well, where do you want to be? Do you want to sell everything, or do you want to sell some things? And as you start to talk about that, then you can say, OK, well, what's the risk if you do this versus if you do this? Then you can talk about the options. And then you can say, well, if you do this, we can, we can add this type of thing in. For example, there's, we were working with a company, brick and mortar, and they wanted to go online. And that's exactly what they did. They first started selling CDs. 
So you could come to their website, you could find out where their stores are, you could get the phone numbers, you could get the hours, or you could buy CDs. And then a little bit later, they actually started adding any sort of electronics because they found that those things sell really well over the web. And they're actually right now struggling to decide, well, should we also sell washers and dryers and refrigerators? Can you come to my website and say, this is the fridge I want, and I'd like delivery on this date. Here's my credit card. Thanks. And they're, they're still trying to figure that out. And what they're finding is that each of these has different options. They need different levels of things because they're integrating with different systems. So then they're starting to prioritize those. And that's kind of what they did. That's why they took that approach. Uh, and then it was documented out. Developing your recommendations. Obviously, if you give somebody a laundry list and say, here's all the things we found wrong, goodbye, uh, you haven't really given them a lot of value. The recommendations are kind of the bread and butter to this. That's what they brought you in for. Um, they could probably come up with a list of their own problems themselves. What they want to know from people like you and me is, what can we do about it? And why? What's the right thing to do? So when you start to develop your security recommendations, you might want to leverage existing things. You might want to say, well, you're a bank, and I know that other banks use these products and these combinations. This is what the architecture might look like. This is why they do it. This is how they've done it. Uh, or you might have to come up with new ideas. You might have to come up with new things. But then you kind of explain it, too. Here's the threat. Here's the likeliness. Here's how you can protect against it. And then you generate a management report. You, you want to turn over the interview notes. So keep in mind when you're taking the notes, don't write things like, this guy's a weirdo. How did this guy ever get a job? The, you know, or if you do, don't turn that over. Uh, the threats matrix. You can create some sort of a scorecard. For business leaders, it's really good. In fact, uh, what we like to do are like the consumer reports bubbles, fully shaded in, fully open, half, or shaded across. And it kind of gives them a really good picture of, here's how you're doing. Here's your scorecard. Or you can do like a sliding scale. Not so good, really good. And you can kind of assess relative to other clients or relative to the industry or relative to where you think you should be. And that's an exercise that works out really well. You sit down with them, you say, put yourself on this map. Where do you see yourself? Why? Why do you see yourself here? And then you sit down with them after you've gone. You say, well, we put you here, and we put you here, and here, and here's why. And here's how we did that. And it gives you a really good discussion point, but it's visual. And they can see pretty easily, oh, well, if I want to increase security here, I just got to slide it over. And then you can say, yeah, and that is some amount of money, some amount of time, some amount of hardware. Uh, and then you can do some proposal inserts, or you can make some slides for them. You can kind of show them, here's what it would look like. Here's the types of things that we would do. But keep in mind, even if you do a risk assessment, you're probably going to come back with a lot of technical controls. Those technical controls may not work if they're not properly implemented or if they're not properly maintained. So again, the passwords. I keep coming back to the passwords because you wouldn't believe how easy it is to guess passwords. How easy it is to guess passwords on things like routers, on things like DNS, on the DNS servers, on things like um, NT servers. I mean, mainframe, or not mainframe so much, but you know, NT servers that are crux of an operation and they have weak passwords on them that never change. Um, or a lot of people have multiple mechanisms. Well, I've got intrusion detection and I've got a firewall and we use encryption. Nobody monitors it though. Nobody maintains it. Nobody checks the logs to see if anything's happening. Basically, what we find is that adequate protection requires policies, it requires planning, it requires ongoing administration, and it requires a technical control. Questions? Thoughts? I couldn't have answered everything.
Yes, sir. Your viewpoint on uh, deregulation, the encryption. They're not. The actual guidelines aren't supposed to be released till December, and a lot of people are jumping the gun. Do you think that's premature to do so? Yeah, I think any. I think making a snap decision that fast is probably premature. I think it's a good idea, though. I think that uh, encryption solves a lot of our problems, right? And I think that what we found is that as computers get faster, encryption algorithms get longer, they get stronger, they also get easier to break. So, I mean, the old 40 and 56-bit encryption just doesn't cut it anymore. So 128, I think it's a good step in the right direction. Absolutely. It's a pretty political area, though, too. Does anybody read um, Bruce Shiner's work, the Cryptogram? Right? Pretty interesting stuff. Thoughts? You can ask me any questions about the consulting or what it's like in those environments. I mean, for example, I'll tell you about this week. Right? We're working on a proposal, as I already mentioned, and I kind of hinted that architecture's changed. What happened was we came in, and um, when you go through a proposal response, the first thing you do is called request for information. You submit a response. So at that point, you kind of do a really high level, these are all the things we're going to do. And they actually hadn't brought us in yet, but we had a networking guy who knew some security, so he threw a bunch of terms in. They looked at it and said, wow, that looks really good. Well, we're working with some different alliance partners. One of them is actually uh, a value-added IP network. They don't want to be called an IP network because they offer, they offer a PKI solution. They offer routers with encryption. They offer encryption across their backbone. They offer all kinds of things like that. And then we've got another one, uh, which is actually a banking company, and they offer a great client base, and they are already authenticating all of their customers using a PKI solution. So all of this comes together. So on Monday, we were told, guess what, guys? The whole solution is going to change. Don't worry about it. Um, get the whiteboards out, drop everything you want. So I was serious. We took 12 hours. We knocked ourselves out. We said, well, what do we need? Okay, well, we're doing transaction data. We need integrity from start to finish. And we need to be able to authenticate that nobody along the way messed with this message. And we need to know that this user is who we said it was. Because this is going over global borders. We designed all this stuff out. We were really excited about it. We found a way that we didn't have to impose security on all kinds of people, but we could meet our requirements. We're kind of excited about it. Uh, our boss went to a meeting, came back, and said, well, guys, I got news for you. Uh, they really, really liked your architecture, but it's not going to fly. Because the company that, oper uh, that operated the network wanted to use their PKI solution, not ours. And they didn't want to do IPsec encryption across the entire network. They wanted to, to just use the line encryptors across their backbone. Back to the drawing board, changed it again. Well, then we figured out there were some problems with that. That actually, if they operated the PKI and they were the certificate authority, that then that created problems with the other people that were also certificate authorities. So then we had to get all of everybody together and talk about this. So what you find a lot of times is that if you're in a consulting business and you're trying to design a solution, uh, you can get to a pretty good solution. But it's not a straight path. And it's not a one-shot deal. It really requires staying on top of the technology and then managing all the different interests and managing the different viewpoints and trying to understand how all that plays into a solution. And then you've got to be willing at some point to say, well, no, this isn't going to work. This solution that you've tried to, to force me to use doesn't meet these requirements for these reasons. And here's why we can't do that. So you know, what gives? How do, you want to, how do you want to negotiate this out? Which is more important and how? And how does that work? So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting field. Other thoughts, questions? Has anybody ever done consulting work? A couple? Anybody thought about it? Anybody been interested in it? No? It's not that bad. It's pretty fun.
<laughs> I learn a lot. I mean, the biggest thing I found is that every day in the field, uh, the big thing to remember about being a, as a consultant too is that you're the expert. So when somebody comes to me uh, and I'm the lead of the security team, they expect me to know the answers. So I spend an hour on the train into the client every day reading every security trade rag I can get and an hour home every day reading them as well as about six or ten dozen websites, or not ten dozen, but six or ten websites during the day trying to see if anything new's happened to try to follow the flow of some things. Um, in fact, a couple of us actually just got some old laptops. We installed Linux on it ourselves and we said, well, if I was a hacker, or more importantly, we said, if I was a uh, kitty script runner, what would I do? What would I load on that? Why? How would I do it? What sites would I hit? What would I use? So that that way we have an intimate knowledge when we go to talk to the people. So instead of just saying, well, yeah, I've installed a firewall like this before. This is why you do it. We can say, yeah, and let me show you what happens if you don't do it this way. Let me hook up my laptop here. Boom. I can show you what that looks like. This is exciting stuff because every day I'm learning something new. And I'm learning business models at the same time. So for me, it's, it's experiential learning uh, accelerated. My learning curve is kind of going like this every day. And in the security space, what's really exciting is the technology is changing every month. Every month, there's something new we've got to worry about, some new reason to do it, some new product coming out. Some are good, some are really not good, but they're popular. And we've got to try to figure <coughs> that out. And that's, uh, for me, that's pretty exciting. That's a, that's a really neat part of consulting. What's not so neat is when something doesn't work out right. Yes, sir? You mentioned that, that, that you read in the journals and websites. Could you mention a couple of the journals and sites that you find really useful? Sure. One of the sites I check out every day is Hacker News. Has anybody seen that site? www.hackernews. I think it's .com. Um, that site's kind of neat because they give some commentary, which quite frankly I find amusing. But it talks about vulnerabilities. It talks about things like encryption. And it, it, what it does is it's basically a news portal. It'll come on the from all sorts of other sources, things that are happening. I usually hit that one every single day. Um, security Focus is something I'll look at a lot, uh, which is at www.securityfocus.com. Uh, and that one's kind of good. If you want to see what some of the tools are, or you want to see what some of the scripts are, or some of the hacks that people are using, they keep an archive of those, uh, which are kind of neat. I, I mean, I, I recommend, in a controlled environment, trying to understand what some of these things do and, and really taking a look at it. Um, in terms of the security trade magazines, surprisingly, I read things like network computing, um, in fact, I even read, uh, today I was reading one called New Media because they talk about secure Java programming. They talk about web server security. Uh, secure, um, let's see, there's a couple security ones. and There's a, one called Security Information Magazine um, and different things like that. If it's something you're really interested in, uh, you can give me a call uh, there or people here will have my email address. I can put together a list for you of stuff that I sit. The thing too is just go to Yahoo, go to computers and go to security. There are tons of websites and a lot of interesting information. Or just go type in hacker and do a search. <laughs> you get a lot of really neat stuff. Just be careful with what you download. Any other questions? Well, thank you very much for your time. If you do have some questions later, oh, I caught you. If you have some questions, if you want to know a little bit more about what consulting's like or, or you want to bounce some ideas off me, feel free. Uh, my telephone number is listed here. I'll make sure that I leave some cards behind. So if uh, anybody has any questions, please don't hesitate to call me. Thanks, guys. Have a good night. Enjoy your weekend.